This week, I want to change tactics a little bit. <clears throat> Since you're all talking about Hurricane Dorian anyway, I thought I'd join in the uh, mix and ask us, what can we learn about Hurricane Dorian? This last week, we boarded up houses, we hoarded snacks, we talked of Jim Cantori, and we posted lots and lots of memes. I don't think I've been on Facebook more in the last like week than I was uh, during just sitting around uh, watching, trying to get hurricane news. And so let me share with you first, the first, and really, to be honest, confession, I really only learned how to pronounce memes uh, just a few months ago. So don't think that I'm uh, great at this. But the, the, the top three memes that I saw during Hurricane Dorian. Number one, did I say it was okay to eat your hurricane snacks? No, Florida, I did not. I don't know about you, but I had about four... Uh, cans of uh, Pringles I bought on Wednesday, and before we even left, we'd eaten all of our Pringles. <laughs> the next one, uh, some of you learned a new word, namaste, as in, y'all going to evacuate? Namaste. Some of you <laughs> decided to rough it out, stay, namaste, I'm going to stay around here. So <laughs> some of you got, were really uh, brave in your... Uh, non-evacuation plans, whereas I truly enjoyed my evacuation, uh, uh, hurricane evacuation vacation. Uh, Third, this is how Floridians are in a Cat 5. 150 mile world winds, we're good. 60 degree weather, bring my coat, please. Can you, is there gloves around here? You know, we turn into wimps. So... So to a little bit more serious, I, I want to ask us, what, what can we learn other than sharing lots of memes? What can we learn about ourselves? What can we learn about our world? What can we learn about God in the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian? What can we say about faith that is true, that's intellectually honest, and that's scripturally faithful in the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian and, and natural disasters like it. At least for me, after Dorian, my first response was, thank you, thank you, thank you that our community was spared, that our church, that our homes are still standing. Thank God. But in the back of my mind, and maybe in the back of your mind, you think, well, what about the Bahamas? We're not people praying there. 70,000 people displaced and homeless. For me, hurricanes by their very nature seem uniquely qualified to leave the Christian with a deep conundrum. Should we thank God or curse God like Job did in Job chapter 3? Should we rejoice or should we lament or should we do both at the same time? Is it appropriate for me as a Christian to thank God for saving me? yet not scorn or or curse God, or at least wonder about His goodness based on the devastation left behind in other places. So today all these thoughts are rumbling around in my heart and maybe in your hearts as well. So today I want to share three facets of a biblical faith. What we can learn from Dorian. Number one, biblical faith embraces disturbing truths about our world. Number two, biblical faith embraces gigantic mysteries about our God. Number three, biblical faith 
embraces an unsettled messiness about our lives. Disturbing truths about our world, gigantic mysteries about our God, and unsettled messiness about our lives. So something about the world, something about our God, and something about our lives. First turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We'll be reading from verse 18 through 25. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 25. Hear God's word for you and for me. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we Wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And the hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You might remember in December of 2004, what is happening in the Bahamas... <clears throat> Happened on a, <clears throat> excuse me, got out of a, had a, a, a week and now my voice is gone, you know, so. You might remember back in 2004, the, the Asian tsunami. What's happening in the Bahamas was happening on a scale not known in my lifetime with regard to natural disaster. The Asian tsunami killed more than 250,000 people across 11 countries. In Glasgow, Scotland, the newspaper, The Herald, wrote this. God, if there is a God, should be ashamed of himself. I hope I'm right that there is no God, for if there were, then he'd have to shoulder the blame. In my book, he'd be as guilty as sin. I'd want nothing to do with him. Is that how we should feel after hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes? Barbara Ehrenreich wrote an article after the same tsunami in 2004 with the title, God Owes Us an Apology. She says, what kind of love inspired God to rest babies from their parents' arms? The better to drown them in a hurry? If he so loves us that he gave his only son, why couldn't he have held those tectonic plates in place at least until the kids were off the beach. Aaron Reich writes, I call for an immediate withdrawal of prayer and other forms of flattery directed at a supposed moral deity, at least until an apology is issued. 
God cares about our puny species, then disasters prove that He is not all-powerful. And if He is all-powerful, then clearly He doesn't give a darn. Is that the end of the story? Is that all that we can say? And I wonder if we're honest, even as Christians, or even because we are Christians, I wonder whether we don't often wonder the very same things. That is, if I wonder if we, instead of compartmentalizing our faith over here and hurricanes over there, what if we brought them together in the closest proximity possible? I wonder if we wouldn't also say, doesn't God owe us an apology? It feels like He does sometimes. How can God be all-powerful and all-loving, and yet there is this devastation, both in our world and also in our own lives, in our own families? What kind of faith, I want to ask this morning, is able to weather the storm of these type of questions? First, biblical faith embraces disturbing truths about our world. Some have called Paul's reflections in Romans chapter 8 like a running mini-commentary on Genesis chapter 3. You remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3, right? The fall of Adam and Eve. I never remember, I'll never forget what a theology professor there said, some off-the-cuff comment that I'll never forget. There I was slugging through, you know, systematic theology, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And he says, you know, all good theology begins with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But you see, this gigantic transition is made from Genesis 1 where God's Heart is celebrating the goodness of creation. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good to this huge transition in Genesis chapter 3 after the sin and rebellion of humanity. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. And so Paul seems to be reflecting on these truths when he says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, he says the creation was subjected to futility in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Creation became a sufferer too, just like us, because of the rebellion of humanity. The earth groans like a woman in labor, Paul is saying. And we often go out and we snap these wonderful pictures of the beauty of creation. We have these wonderful snapshots of when a woman gives birth, she's holding her baby boy and her baby girl. It's a beautiful picture, even though when my own mother presented a few pictures to somebody at her church, one of the guys in the church said that, you know, I always think a, uh, uh, newborns are like drowned, drowned rats. My mother has never forgiven this guy, wherever he is. And so... We love to see the picture of the baby being held by the mother, but thankfully, not many people take pictures of, you know, the woman right in the middle of labor, right? Thank goodness for that. But creation is longing to be delivered. It's waiting and suffering childbirthing pains. Creation longs for its liberation day. Like a newborn baby is waiting to be birthed. 
So you might ask, well, what does a fallen world look like? Well, it looks a lot like the Asian tsunami in 2004. It looks a lot like the devastation that's being caused and that you see on your television screens in the Bahamas. And so, in other words, the best answer to the question, why would God create a world with natural disasters, is that He didn't. So says Randy Alcorn. And so I want to ask, do you understand the biblical truth about our world? That it's not how it's supposed to be. That when your spouse sins against you, when your job makes you become bitter or disillusioned, when you're you know, sort of cranky about the church, have you really embraced the biblical worldview that this world is not your home? This is not how it's supposed to be. That you're passing through this deeply broken and wounded world. First Peter chapter 4. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Have you embraced a biblical worldview about the world in which you live? Have you begun to long and desire just for a little bit your true home? You see, instead of bitterness, instead of resentment, instead of unbelief, the disasters and the evil that we see all around us from hurricanes to racism to massive gun shootings, all these events should <clears throat> begin to embed deep within us this notion that is becoming increasingly hard to accept in our suburban, comfortable America, that this world is not my home. Barbara Ehrenreich blames God for the 2004 tsunami. God owes us an apology. Scripture blames human evil for subjecting this once perfect world to futility, frustration, and groaning. What if the biblical view is not that God owes us an apology, but that we owe God an apology for our broken world? As Randy Alcorn puts it, but what if the architect and builder crafted a beautiful and perfect home for earth's inhabitants who despite his warnings carelessly cracked its foundation punched holes in the walls and trashed the house why blame the builder when the occupants took a sledgehammer to their own home first biblical faith embraces very disturbing truths deeply disturbing truths about our world it's groaning it's waiting for its liberation day Second, and here it gets most tricky, there are other scriptures that suggest that God is sovereign even over our broken creation. And I admit these are hard to reconcile with our faith. So the second thing we learn from Dorian is this. Biblical faith embraces gigantic mysteries about our God. Have you learned to embrace mystery? Because it seems to me that God is still sovereign over nature. Yes, even over our wounded and groaning world. Psalm 147.18 He makes the winds blow and the waters flow. Jesus, you might remember, calmed the storm. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7 I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Amos chapter 3, verse 6, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? What do you do with those scriptures? 
Yes, our world is groaning and subject to frustration, but is not God sovereign even over this broken creation? With respect to hurricanes, we've already made the argument that natural disasters are actually a misnomer. Hurricanes are not natural disasters, but unnatural disasters that God didn't plan from the beginning. We could also say there's nothing inherently morally evil about walls of water circling around in a place called the ocean, you know, which by definition is made up of thousands upon thousands of gallons of water over thousands of thousands of miles. Just as a climber once remarked, Mount Everest never killed anyone, it just sits there. So too, nature does what nature does. You've probably heard the arguments against God with the following three tenets. Number one, a truly good God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. Number two, evil exists. Therefore, a God who is both good and powerful cannot exist. To some, this is the very bedrock of atheism. But built within the seemingly cogent argument is the assumption, if I can't see any reasons God might have for permitting evil, then he doesn't have any either. But remember, the argument of the atheist, the argument of the skeptic, starts with the premise that God is all-powerful. If God is all-powerful as you say he is, then why doesn't he use his power to stop this disaster? But a Christian can then say to the skeptic, if God is infinitely more powerful than us, don't you think he would also be infinitely more knowledgeable than us as well? Why couldn't God have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that you can't think of? In fact, as Tim Keller says, this belief that because we cannot think of something, God cannot think of it either is more than a fallacy. He says it's a mark of great human pride and faith in one's own mind. In fact, this is precisely the response that God gave to a suffering Job. Job shakes his fists at God, chapter after chapter. And what does God say? Does God say, Job, let me explain to you my moral governing of the universe. This is how, Job, that precisely that I can still be morally good and still permit the evil that has fallen upon you. Get the pen and paper out, Job. I'm about to give you a 10,000-point moral treatise. And each point has 10,000 subpoints. Are you ready? Are you ready? Did he say that? No. What does God say? Were you there, Job? Were you there? He says this in Job chapter 38, when God finally, he lets Job speak. He lets the line run out on Job's frustration, disappointment, disillusionment, lamenting. And then he says this, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. And so in Socratic style, God begins to question Job about the creation in which he lives. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go out 
and say to you, here we are. Do you command lightning, Job? Do you do that? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you, Job? When that happens, does the universe inform you or does that happen under my watch and under my knowledge? And if Job was a modern, I wonder if God would have asked him, Job, can you even track a hurricane? No, you cannot. I've seen all your spaghetti models, right? You can't do it. Only I know when the hurricane is going, Job, not Jim Cantori, right? So what is God's point? Job, if you can't even understand the physical universe in which you live, the world that you can taste, the world that you can see, the world that you can touch, if you can't understand the physical universe, what makes you think you could possibly understand the moral universe? And question me. You see, a biblical faith allows God to be God. Biblical faith recognizes God's knowledge of the moral universe is vastly superior to yours. Biblical faith joyfully leaves room for the mystery of God. In fact, I would say that the problem of evil and suffering is actually a greater stumbling block for the atheist and the skeptic than it is for the Christian. You see, C.S. Lewis was once in this position, denying the claims of Christianity primarily because of the existence of evil. But he soon realized the conundrum of the atheist. He realized that his objection to God actually rested on a good moral purpose that he perceived should rightly govern the universe. In other words, he realized that he couldn't object to no moral standard behind the world if there was actually no moral standard behind the world. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. We could think about this quote all day long. He says this, In a word, unless we allow ultimate reality to be moral, we cannot morally condemn it. From what position do we do so? What if our very objection to evil and suffering in our world is actually more of an argument not against the existence of God, but for the existence of a good and loving God. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was of the same mind in his letter from the Birmingham jail. To talk about justice, you have to talk about an objective morality. And to talk about an objective morality, you have to talk about God. Biblical faith embraces gigantic mysteries about our God. This too is something we learn from Dorian. Disturbing truths about our world. Gigantic mysteries about our God. Third, a biblical faith embraces an unsettled messiness about our lives. Many of you might have heard the phrase, Misemplas, translated everything in its place. Pronounced misemplas, it comes from the French culinary world. Misemplas has everything to do with putting all the ingredients, all the utensils, all the pots and pans in their proper position ahead of time in order to cook the meal as efficiently as possible. Misemplas, as one culinary writer has stated, and as you know, I love to quote culinary writers, Misemplas is more than a process or procedure for effective cooking. It represents a philosophy, 
even an ethical system. Everything in its place. Everything in its place enables a chef to cook delicious meals quickly and efficiently. And it works in the kitchen. But often we want to apply misemplas to our lives. Thinking if I can just get everything in place, then I can be the person I want to be. If I can get everything in place in my life, then I can live above the suffering and the chaos of this world. If I can get all my relationships right and in the proper place, then all will be well. I will be generous. I will be joyful. I'll be the person I've always wanted to be. This implies is how we want to run our lives. Miss and Pause is great for the kitchen, but not great for faith. Faith, you see, is lived in the chaos. Faith is lived in the suffering. Faith is lived in the midst of life's deepest and darkest questions. And so the answer, then, is not to simply put everything in its place. To have this notion that someday everything will be right in my life in my family, in my community. No. The answer is to trust in a God who will one day put everything in its place. Hurricanes like Dorian, the pain of divorce, the diagnosis of cancer, the messiness of relationship can never stand up to misemplas. Everything doesn't have its place in this life. Because of that, we wait for another life. We long for heaven. 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the cold waters of the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California's Catalina Island. Chadwick had been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. But on this day, in 1952, the weather was chilly. And there was fog all the way from Catalina Island all the way to the coast of California. And so after several hours of swimming, she started to beg her mother, take me out, take me out, take me out. I can't swim anymore. And finally, she was pulled out to a nearby boat. This time she had failed to reach the shore. She soon discovered, however, that the shore was less than a half of a mile away. Next day at the press conference, she said, all I could see was the fog. All I could see was the chaos. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. What's on the other side of the fog? It's glorious. Sets all things right. And that's your true home. Have you begun to long For that place where everything is set right. Think about that.